Our scripture this morning is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week, uh, when we began this series, you might recall that we noted that we have something rather remarkable in these verses, that what we have is Jesus writing to us, his church. There are seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, and as we said, seven represents the number of completeness, everything. And so we're supposed to understand from this that these seven churches represent every church everywhere and at all times, so that as Jesus is writing, he is writing not just to these seven churches, but to us as well. And at the very end of each of these letters, there is the same statement. Let the one who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. That's the instructions for the listener. And what it's saying is that when Jesus is done writing, God has not yet completed what he is going to do with these letters. That every time one of his churches listens, the spirit there is present and actually speaks and applies and directs the teaching of Jesus to that particular church. And the calling of the church in that moment is not just to hear the words, but to actually open themselves up and truly hear what the spirit is saying in that moment. And so knowing that that is what we are called to do, I invite you, as we prepare to consider this, to pray with me that the Spirit would not only speak to us, but would enable us to hear what he has to say. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, uh, this is uh, not something we want to take lightly. Even though every week we have this time where we have heard your word read and then we consider it, and, and even though it can become almost commonplace, that is not how we want it to be. Because, Lord, we want to hear you speak to us. We want to hear Jesus. And so we ask for that even now, that whatever you want us to hear so that you might shape us and change us, you would give us ears to hear, that we more and more would be the church you call us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we will see in the coming weeks, there is a rather consistent structure to each of these seven letters. And they always begin 
with a reminder of who it is that is speaking to us. Because how we hear is almost always shaped by how we view the one who's talking. I mean, that's probably an obvious statement. I think of um, when probably about 18 years ago when I was still in seminary, I was an intern at a church and I was preaching on a Sunday and there was this visitor that had never been there before and after the sermon, after the service, he came up to me and gave me kind of a litany of pointers of how I can improve my preaching. Now let me just say, I have, I have found feedback to be incredibly useful for me when it is good feedback. But when you have someone that you've never met before who doesn't know you at all and for all you know knows nothing about preaching, it's kind of hard to take those words seriously, right? So, you know, I tried listening as well as I could, and I think I pretty much forgot everything he said the moment he left my view. That's the way it works. When we don't think that much of the person who's speaking, it's hard to listen. Now, I contrast this with, for me, one of the great examples of how to give constructive criticism, Tim Gunn. Now, some of you might not know who Tim Gunn is. This is Confession Time. Jennifer and I, from time to time, will enjoy watching Project Runway, which is really up here in terms of highbrow entertainment. And if you haven't seen it before, it is a reality show about fashion designers competing against each other. They're given challenges every week. And about midway through the challenge, where they're kind of like halfway done with constructing whatever dress or outfit that they're making, Tim Gunn, who really is like the fashion Yoda of this kind of walks through and talks to each person, giving feedback. Sometimes that feedback is good. I mean, when he says this has a potential for having a real wow moment, you can just see how excited the person who's making it is. But sometimes, of course, these words are a little bit more severe. I mean, the kind of like almost worst thing that he can say is this worries me. Even worse, though, is occasionally he'll look at it and he'll kind of like pause and say, frankly, it's a bit of a hot mess. And, and, and so in these moments, these are fairly devastating criticisms. But here's what always strikes me. Every person who is listening to Tim Gunn in the moment is receptive to what he has to say and, and is not defensive generally. And, and here's why I think it is. Somehow this person just exudes support. Like he always, with each of these contestants, it is clear that he is for them. He wants them to succeed. Somehow he cares about them, and because of that, because they both respect him and they know that he cares, they are willing to listen even when the words that he has to say are hard to hear. And so what we want, what we need to understand as we begin is that Jesus, as he is speaking to us, is not some far-removed, disconnected judge who doesn't care whether we succeed or fail. That everything that he says to us in these letters are words of love. And, and we're reminded right at the very beginning of who it is. It says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, last week, you might remember, we saw that this meant that, you know, both the seven stars and the seven lampstands represented the churches. That Jesus is the one who holds the churches in his hand. He is the one who is walking beside the churches, caring for them, paying attention to them. He holds us and he cares for us, and he walks beside us, and he is reminding from the outset, this is who it is that is speaking, because Jesus is going to give words that are painful to hear. 
but they're words that come from someone who loves, someone who is for his church, someone who wants to see them flourish. And the first church that he speaks to here is the church in Ephesus. Now, it's helpful probably to know two things about this church that was planted by Paul about 40 years ago, if we're wanting to understand the context into which Jesus is speaking. And the first is that the Ephesian Christians, this church in Ephesus, was really kind of in the hotbed of paganism. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world was the Temple of Artemis, which was there in Ephesus. It was this massive, incredibly impressive structure that drew in all sorts of tourism and also brought in quite a bit of an economic boost to Ephesus. In some ways, Ephesus was largely defined by this amazing temple. Their economy was largely driven by this amazing temple. And so you can imagine when people come in who say, and a church comes in that says there's only one God and Artemis isn't it, that not only would that be offensive to some of the people who lived in Ephesus, but it would also threaten their very livelihood. And so it was not an easy thing to be a Christian in Ephesus. It meant that you were daily, regularly encountering resistance, even direct persecution. And the second thing to know about the Ephesian church is that this was a significant, this was an important church by at least human standards. They had an amazing set of teachers. At the very beginning, even before it was fully planted, you have this well-known order, Apollos, and then Paul comes in and he stays there longer than he stays in any other area, more than two years. And when he's done, he leaves, he gets his protege, Timothy, and he has Timothy stay in Ephesus for a while, building up this very well-equipped set of elders who are trained, who understand the gospel. Later on, according to church history, the, God, the apostle John stays in Ephesus. And the reason there's so much investment is because this really is a hub for the whole area. P churches are planted starting from Ephesus. Ephesus plants, Ephesus trains. Ephesus is kind of the, the flagship of this whole region. It's a significant church. So we have here a church that is orthodox, that is successful, that is facing opposition. And Jesus' instructions really mirror that. I mean, he starts by saying, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Let me just pause for a moment. Just consider how just, just hearing that in and of itself would be an encouragement. And Jesus says that to you as well. I, I, know, I know you, Trinity, I know what you are doing. I know your patient endurance. Jesus is the one who walks among us and sees us. And when he's speaking to the church in Ephesus, he focuses on, on two specific things, doesn't he? First, he speaks of how they are dealing with false teachers. He says, I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, and here's what he's talking about, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Verse 6 kind of gives us a little bit more information when it says, You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about the Nicolaitans in a couple weeks from now because he's, they're mentioned a little bit more explicitly there. But it appears that this group of teachers were what sometimes is technically referred to as antinomians. Antinomian just means against the law. That is, there are people who are saying that now that God has saved us, now that Jesus has died for us and we're forgiven, we don't need to think about obedience. We shouldn't really be concerned if our lives look any different from those of the world around us because we're saved by grace. 
And Jesus is very clear that this is a false gospel, that this is turning away from Christ himself. And he says in very, very certain terms, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus is saying, well done in seeing these false teachers and rooting them out. Now, if you think about it, this is not an easy job. For the Ephesian church to have dealt with this, that would have meant first that there was going to be probably influential leaders within their congregation, people who were loved that started leading people astray. And then the leaders of the church would have had to get together and think, say, what do we do about this? This is a friend of ours. And they would have had to talk and meet with them and, and think this through and eventually have to say the very unpopular statement to the congregation, we believe this is not in accordance with the gospel. And if you believe this, you cannot be part of this church. And people would have had to leave. This would have been messy. And Jesus is saying, well done. For us to be a healthy body, it means we have to have a strong immune system. Well done seeing the things that I hate and rejecting them. And he gives another word of praise in verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I know that you are in a town, you are in a city that opposes you. I, I see what has happened. I see the persecution, and I see how you have not stopped proclaiming the name of Jesus and, and being faithful to me. Well done. Here is a church that is, is strong, that has maintained its orthodoxy, that has stayed firm in the face of opposition, and yet they are in grave danger. Jesus says next, I have this against you. Can you imagine just as, as you're hearing Jesus address you, speaking to you directly and say, I have this against you. There is a real problem that we need to address. This would have been a sobering moment as this letter is read to the Ephesian congregation. And here's the content of his rebuke. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Jesus is saying, remember 40 years ago when the, when the gospel came and you heard about me, and you heard of how I died for you. Do you remember that? Do you remember how you were transformed? How you overflowed in joy and love towards me and this congregation was formed and you loved each other well and anyone who came in could have seen something was different, that there was a delight in the way you served each other and there was a real passion in the way that you worshiped me. Do you remember that? You have lost, you have abandoned that love that you had at first. Now this is something that can happen to churches all too easily. You know, when you are sometimes forged, refined in battle, sometimes the battle can become everything. Being right, holding on to rightness, making sure that your life is appropriate can become everything and over time you lose the love that makes truth beautiful. The signs are noticeable when you start looking for them. People become increasingly comfortable talking about the, the different points of theology and not talking about their love for Jesus. 
in a sermon. People will, will reflect and, and think that was interesting, but they won't say, but wasn't it just glorious as we, we saw how Jesus is? Or, or they won't speak personally of how Jesus has been teaching them and growing them. In their lives, more and more, the focus is on doing the right thing, making sure kids know about sex and drugs and doing the right thing, making sure we're attending church and, and giving our appropriate 10%. Now, these are all good things. But over time, there's lost this, this affection towards each other, this joy in, in connecting with each other, this sorrow when other people are going through struggles, this grieving over the community around us as, as we see our weakness. These are signs of a church that is holding on to truth but is losing love altogether. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that it's entirely possible that one can speak in glorious tongues, one can understand things deeply, can be theologically incredibly profound, can even do the right thing, giving everything he has to the poor, and yet be completely without love. And here's what he says, if that's true, you have nothing. Yes, you might be incredibly articulate, but it's nothing. Yes, you might be doing all these things that look great in the eyes of others, but it is nothing. Without love, it is nothing. And Jesus says the very same thing. He says, if you do not turn back, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Unless you return to the way you were, I will remove your lampstand. Now, those are strong words. This is why I say they're in grave danger. Because the lampstand symbolizes church. To remove the lampstand saying you are going to stop becoming a church. You're not going to be a church anymore. Yes, you might keep meeting, but I won't be there with you. You might still proclaim certain things, but there will be no gospel. There will be none of me in it. You will be completely removed. That's the kind of danger that they're in. And so even as we hear these warnings, I think we, we always, in situations like this, should pause and ask ourselves, to what extent are Jesus' words of warnings towards the Ephesian church words that you and I need to hear? Have we become so interested in getting things right and on doing what is right that we have abandoned love? Are you able to say sincerely, I, I love God. I, I love Jesus. When, when we serve, do we find ourselves overflowing and, and giving because of our passion for others? Or do we find ourselves just trying to figure out what is the amount that we need to do to have fulfilled our duty? Now, again, I think we need to pause and remember the same thing that I pointed out earlier. When Jesus is speaking these uncomfortable words and confronting, this is not someone who is just kind of holding his arms and waiting for us to fail. This is the one who has given everything for us, who has died for us, who loves us, and who longs to see us flourish. In, in the very end of this 
this particular letter, he's saying to the one who prevails, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And he's speaking here of Genesis 2. Remember when Adam and Eve enjoyed this perfect harmony with God in this world where there is no failure, no sin. And Jesus is saying, that's where I'm bringing you. I'm giving everything I can so that one day you will enjoy perfect harmony and delight without suffering, without death. If you prevail, if you follow me, that is what I have for you. That is the love Jesus has for us. He wants to give us that. He is on our side. And because he's on our side, he will not allow us to be half alive. Because that's the thing. To be alive only is possible when we love. Because love is life. The scripture speaks of how the God that we worship is love. And the only way to truly live is to come to understand that love, to receive that love, and then to reflect it back to him, back to the world around us. We spoke last week of how it's harder to love and it's safer not to love, but you cannot be alive if you do not love. To love is how we experience joy. It's how we experience humanity. And Jesus says, I will not rest until you are the people you are created to be. If you are without love, you are without me. Because that is who I am. I am the one who has loved, and I'm the one who creates love in my people. And so he calls the Ephesian church back. And so he calls us, do not abandon the love that you had at first. And I imagine the Ephesian church, as they're hearing this, and perhaps even now as we're hearing this, the question that is on our minds is, is what do we do? Maybe some of us are like, yeah, that's true. I... I go through the motions, I hold on to things, but my heart is, is ice cold. And at times, I think if we come to that awareness, we've had this kind of sense of defeatism, that there's nothing we can do. How can we change ourselves? How can we just choose to love? And so we feel like we're hopeless. But it's important to recognize that is not the opinion that Jesus has. Immediately after warning and and saying, this is what is true of you, he calls them to action. He says that you can make a choice. And what he says is, go back. He says this in three different ways. He says, remember from where you have fallen. He says, repent. He says, do the works you did at first. As some of you might know, I am not someone with a great sense of direction. I get lost really easily. The one thing I've learned, say I'm going on a hike and I've taken what looks like a great shortcut and I find myself completely bewildered, the best thing to do in that moment is to retrace your steps and go back to where you weren't lost and start again from there. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Do you remember what it was like? Do you remember how you once loved? Go back. Retrace your steps. And really, if we reflect on these three commands, there are, there are three steps that I think Jesus calls us to as we are those who pursue to, to grow our love, to be a people who love rather than to be people who are cold, who have abandoned love. There are three things he tells us to do. The first is to acknowledge our failure. When Jesus says, return from the place where you have fallen, when he says, repent, he is assuming that we are acknowledging the fact 
that we need to change. Because, of course, you can't repent. You can't turn around until you recognize that I am not where I should be, that I need to be a different person than I am. And so we need to ask ourselves what we've already been thinking. Is this true of me? Is it true that I need to grow in love? Is it true that I have a tendency sometimes to abandon love for just going through the motions, for getting things right? Let me suggest... I don't think what Jesus is saying to the Ephesian church is exactly what he would say to us. Any more than when we see some of these other churches that are facing uh, facing deep persecution. I don't think those letters would be written word for word to us as well. Because, Because I do think our church, when I look around and see the way that we are towards each other, and when I see as we're worshiping, there is real love that gives this congregation life. But my guess is that we would also agree that there are times where that love is lacking. That as we confess from week to week that we do not love our Lord God as he deserves. We do not love our neighbors as ourselves to the degree that we should. And I think what Jesus calls us to do is to name that. It's not to hide from the fact and not to allow false positives of what looks like maturity to distract us from the reality that what he is calling us to is love and to recognize our need to change. And I think to grow in love begins with naming that. Secondly, along with acknowledging, Jesus calls us to remember. He says, remember from where you have fallen. And when he's saying that to the Ephesian church, he's speaking back to that initial time when the Ephesians first became Christians. It's actually described for us in a part of Acts that when the gospel came to Ephesus, some really remarkable things took place. As people heard the gospel, they did some pretty dramatic things. Some people had tens of thousands of dollars worth of pagan material, and instead of trying to sell them, they burned them as a sign of their love and their devotion. There was a passion, there was a revival that took place in that city. And that only happens when the gospel penetrates people's hearts. That kind of love that overflows in action only happens when this congregation, when this group of people come to understand what it means that they are loved by God, that Jesus has died for them, that they are forgiven. First John tells us that we love because God has first loved us. And so when Jesus says, remember the place from where you have fallen, I think he is implicitly calling them back to remember what was it like. Remember what you saw. Go go back to recognizing the truth that I love you, that I have died for you. Friends, for us to be a church that is filled with love for God and for others, we must first be a church that is filled with with an awareness of how God has loved us. So let me ask you this. We talk about the love of God, and it can become a fact that we can name, but let me ask you, do you understand that when we are talking of this, it is true about you? That before God even made this world, he already knew you by name. That he already set his love upon you, that he already chose to give the most precious gift he could have given, the very life of his son, 
to rescue you. It's not enough just to know it's a fact. It is something that needs to penetrate your soul. Sometimes, personally, I think it's almost self-indulgent to try to reflect on that reality, that I am loved, that I am forgiven, that God knows me. But it is not. It is the very lifeblood of who we are. For us to be able to grow in love, we first need to be able to taste of the reality, to breathe in the truth that we are loved by God. Because only as we come to know that can we reflect that love towards others. So Jesus says, remember. Remember the way it once was. Remember the joy that you had when you understood how I have loved you, how I have given myself for you. Remember. So Jesus says, acknowledge your failure. Remember. And then he also says, act. The final command, he says, is do the works that you did at first. In other words, remember those first days when, when love was coursing through this congregation. How did you act? What did you do as an expression of love for me? How did you love each other? Do that again. Which is interesting because this is not the way that we normally think of how things work. I think our general understanding of how love works, of how action works, is we wait until we have the feelings because we never want to do something that's inauthentic. And once we have the feelings all worked up, then we act according to those feelings because actions always follow feelings. Now, feelings are important. That's why Jesus calls us to acknowledge our failure and he calls us to remember so that our heart can be moved. But Jesus also is implying here that sometimes it's not just feelings that lead to actions. Sometimes our actions lead to our feelings. Sometimes what we need to do is act in a loving manner and as we do, our heart gets shaped by those very actions. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets, that when you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. Think for a moment about our relationship with Haiti. A few years ago, we barely knew what was going on with this nation, maybe like five or six years ago, but over time, it's not a matter of we kind of kept on trying to care more, care more, care more, okay, now let's do something, right? What, what happened? Through, largely through Ted's leadership, we took steps of action. People visited Haiti and sought to serve it. We, we had a collection after the earthquake to care for Haiti. We, we started sponsoring orphans, and do you know what happened? The more that we started doing these things, these acts of love, the more that we cared. Because sometimes it's actions that lead to feeling. Sometimes as we act loving, our love that's, that we can sense follows from it. And Jesus says here, to pursue love, don't just wait for the feeling. Act loving. Go back to those, the ways, the, the, the works that you did at first. Let me ask you, as you think of your life, what does it look like to express love for God? I mean, each of us, it might be a little bit different for some of us. It might be in our times of prayer, and some of us might be generosity or the way that we give of our time. There might even be times that you can think of when, when the love of God was clear and you found yourself responding in love. What did you do? Go back to that. Even if you're not feeling, 
Start walking in that way and see God giving you the feelings. What does it look like for you to love the people in this church or you to love the world around you? If you keep on waiting until you finally find yourself motivated enough to do it, you might never be motivated enough. But to start by stepping in, then your heart can follow. Jesus says, go back, act loving, because that's part of the way that we love. Our Savior is the one who gave himself for us in love. He is the expert on love. And because he loves us, he will not rest until we become the beautiful, loving people that we are created to be. And so he says, acknowledge where your failure is. Remember, remember my love and act. And so as we prayed at the very beginning, our desire is to not just have heard this in kind of in terms of our mind, but to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. And so here's what I would like for us to do for the, essentially the rest of our time together. In a moment, I'm going to invite us to pause, to confess, to do exactly what we talked about, to, to think through where our lives are lacking in the love that is so beautiful, that is so life-giving, and to confess that and to name that. And then as we move to the table, what I am praying and hoping will be true is that what the Lord's Supper is supposed to do will happen. And that is that as we eat and as we drink, we will savor the reality of God's love for us and it will nourish our souls. And then when that is done, instead of going straight to silence, I'm going to ask us to take a couple minutes of silence to then start thinking, okay, as those who have been loved, what does it look like for us to respond in love? Don't worry, I'll, I'll kind of give you step by step as we walk through. So you don't have to remember all this, but I just wanted to give you a heads up that I'm wanting us to even right now try to apply this letter in our response. And so I'd like to invite you to join with me in taking a couple minutes of, of just confessing, of being honest before God, knowing we have a God who loves us, and being honest where our heart has grown cold and where we have abandoned love. And let's confess that, and then I'll lead us together in prayer. Lord, you know us, you know our hearts, Lord, you know the reality of how, how our love for you sometimes is stifled by so many other things, by our anxieties, by our focus on just kind of getting things done right, by the pride we might have of knowing the right things. Lord, we confess that we do not love you as, as you deserve, that we do not love you yet with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength. 
And Father, you also see how though your spirit is moving us, enabling us at times to love, yet there are also times that we resent our neighbor, that we try to protect ourselves from them rather than to give ourselves in love. Lord, we confess these things saying that is not who we want to be. So we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your healing. And we ask now, Lord, as we move to the table, that you would convince our hearts again of the reality of what your son has done for us and of the reality of how deeply you love us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel from 1 John 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God.